Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Lone War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the long war. Today, we have a very special guest, a man who needs no introduction. He sure as hell is going to get one. He's one of my closest friends and valued colleagues. He's the co-founder of the Long War Journal, as well co-founder of Generation Jihad. He's the guy I call when I'm trying to make sense of the madness in this mad world. The Rizza, the Jizza, the Jaza, Tom Jocelyn. Tom, welcome back to Generation Jihad. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, it's been two years. Thanks for having me, Bill. It's great to see you and great to do this once again. Yeah, well, look, we we talk often, not often enough. This is the podcast we created to share our conversations with the world. And it really is great to, to catch back up with you in this format. Yeah, unfortunately, the timing of this is after um, three Americans were killed, you know, in Jordan and a base in Jordan. So you and I were talking about uh, making sense of all this and the sort of feckless response to what's going on throughout the region. So, of course, that means it's a great time for me to come back and complain. Yeah, right? Well, you know, I mean... Is it complaining if we're speaking truth here? I, I'm not so sure. But yeah, it, it often does come off like that. You know, look, Tom and I, we launched Generation Jihad. I can't believe it. Four years ago, just as President Trump was uh, cutting a deal with the Taliban. Years ago, I mean, it has to be almost two decades, Tom, where you coined a term that I absolutely love, disconnecting the dots. Seen this across the, the issues that we face, across policy issues. Tell us again. What does that term mean? What does disconnecting the dots mean? And give us the initial example where you use that. Well, you know, it really started with Al-Qaeda because you and I were documenting Al-Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan and throughout the the world, really. And this is before the rise of ISIS. This is before a lot of events um, sort of took over or took hold and really captured the public's attention. Years ago, what happened was that this paradigm that really kind of seeped into across U.S. government channels and across a lot of the so-called expert community. The idea was that no matter what evidence you were given or what data you were given, the prevailing bias was to play disconnect the dots. In other words, not to put together a sort of holistic map of Al-Qaeda and understanding of Al-Qaeda and what it was doing, but instead to pretend like nothing was really Al-Qaeda. You know, essentially it was, at the time, it was basically Osama bin Laden holed up somewhere in Pakistan nobody knew at the time, this is many years ago, um, you know, waiting for a drone strike or a special operations raid and anything else wasn't really Al-Qaeda. That was the disconnected dots mantra. And we saw this time and time again, you know, they, they, you'd have to go, you have to jump through these metaphysical hoops to prove that something was actually part of the Al-Qaeda network or, or an actor was either a group or an individual, you know, that sort of thing. And we saw this come to a head in Afghanistan, where you know you and I documented for many years the sticky estimate that the U.S. intelligence community had about Al Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan. It was always we've talked about this in previous podcasts. It was always fifty to one hundred. Never changed. It didn't matter how many guys were killed or captured. It was always fifty to one hundred. And that's the disconnect. That's a good example of disconnecting the dots mantra. But then it also spread to the so-called Al Qaeda affiliates. And so this whole paradigm came up, this idea that, well, there's this core of Al-Qaeda, which is one thing, and then there are all these affiliates, which are another thing, and they're kind of loosely affiliated. And we would point out, Bill and you and I would point out, well, wait a minute, you know, look at some of the guys who are running the so-called affiliates. You know, if at the time you had, for example, you know, Nasr al-Wahashi, who was the head of Al-Qaeda in the Peninsula, former aide-de-camp to Osama bin Laden, he's as core Al-Qaeda as it comes. 
But just because he's in Yemen, he's considered uh, an affiliate of Al-Qaeda and not core Al-Qaeda. And then, whoops, it turns out he's part of senior Al-Qaeda leadership, too, and is actually in a pecking order until he's eventually killed. And we can go on and on like this for hours, right? But this the bottom line is it reflects a biased mindset of saying, instead of taking the evidence as is and sort of adding it up and connecting the dots, which is a cliche term or phrase, the prevailing bias was to disconnect the dots. And you and I talked about uh, doing this podcast because – we're kind of seeing the same thing again with Iran, right? Like it's the disconnect of the dots mantra when it, the mindset when it comes to Iran and its presence throughout the region. You anticipated my next question there. Is that same dynamic at play with, with Iran's Shia proxy militias? And, and obviously you answered that question. It is yes. Um, so that leads to the next question, Tom. Why do analysts continue to disconnect the dots with Iran and its proxies and um, allies, uh, allied militias? I, I put the Houthis and that, although they may may just well call them a proxy at this point, given what they're doing. Well, you know, let's start with the Houthis, right? Remember the disconnect the dots on the Houthis. There's a whole disconnect the dots argument on that, that they're not really, you know, in the Iranian orbit. They're not really, you know, part of Iran's proxy war against its many enemies and, and America throughout the region. And of course, whoops, that turns out to be totally false. They're very much in the Iranian fold. And there was all sorts of evidence at the time this argument was being made several years ago that that was the case. But Look, I mean, to answer your question, going back many years now, you know, you and I have talked about this, that um, a lot of policy decisions, a lot of analysis is really either implicitly or explicitly framed through the aftermath of the Iraq war, which, of course, for good reasons, is deeply unpopular, um, you know, really did not turn out well at all. Um, in fact, turned over, uh, created a, a, a large vacuum of power in Iraq that uh, Iran and, of course, uh, ISIS ended up filling for time being. And of course, Iran still has uh, extensive power in Iraq. And the bottom line was the idea was that, that people didn't want another Iraq war. And so it becomes very convenient to say, well, if we don't want another Iraq war, let's just explain all this away or sort of downplay what's really going on here. And that really was the prevailing mindset for many years, I would say. Um, now, of course, you know, when I, as I say that, of course, I don't want another Iraq war. You don't want another Iraq war talking about this. Nothing short of it. But by the same token, something like that can't taint your analysis forevermore. You know, you have to be able to explain what's going on and actually connect the dots and use evidence to explain what's happening. And you and I have been watching this and we've been talking about it um, off the podcast, just conversations between you and me. I mean, look around the region right now and look at what's happening and who's the real bad actor, right? And you know, the U.S. government and the Biden administration, they certainly highlight Iran. They'll still talk about Iran as being, you know, Iranian-backed groups or Iran is behind um, this or that. But they don't want to really deal with Iran because of, I think, this this overarching fear of getting into an Iraq-style war. Um, but look around the region and you can't escape the conclusion that Iran is the grand puppet master. Um, you know, we have the we have the October 7th attack against Israel by Hamas, whether the Iranians knew or didn't know the full scope of what was coming there or not, Hamas has clearly been in the Iranian fold for many years. Um, you look at what's happening in Iraq with the Shiite militias, Iran's fingerprints are all over that. You look at the Houthis, you know, firing on cargo ships and American assets uh, in the Red Sea, that's Iranian's fingerprints are all over that. You look at Iran's influence in Syria, um, again, in terms of the IRGC moving forward, um, its personnel and coordinating with Hezbollah all the way down through Lebanon. I mean, you can go on and on and on. The idea is the, the issue is that Iran plus Iran plus Iran equals Iran. It doesn't equal something other than Iran. And the disconnected dots mindset says, let's pretend it's something other than Iran at the end of the day. 
Yeah, you you make a great point, Tom. That you know, one that I've been making uh, often. You know, just because we're recognizing the fact doesn't mean that we're advocating for a certain a certain policy. If we're going to create policy dealing with Iran, I mean, there are things we can do short of war to deal with them. It's it's really frustrating that we get accused of being warmongers or we want to attack Iran or we want to do these certain things. But one of one of the by disconnecting the dots, what I've what I've learned is is things snowball over time and things get worse. We've refused to understand or recognize Iran's role in the region with supporting these proxy militias. And here we are today. We're essentially at war with them. We're not allowed to call it that. The administration repeatedly tells us that. Yet we're in a shooting war with Iran. The U.S. launched a series of strikes against uh, in uh, against these militias as well. And it says in the CENTCOM press release against the IRGC or Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. That's the Praetorian Guard for the Iranian regime. We're carrying over 85 strikes last evening, according to CENTCOM. I mean, we are at war with Iran, are we not, Tom? I mean, we are. It's a limited war. I mean, but, you know, these 85 strikes, you and I were, were watching this, too. I mean, this the biggest lead up to airstrikes uh, that I can remember where the U.S. was telegraphing this well in advance, saying uh, that they were preparing for retaliation. They were determining where they were going to retaliate. They're going to retaliate in Iraq and Syria. And then they did. I mean, they, they certainly gave the Iranian network, the IRGC, their proxies and partners all the time in the world to basically prepare for a retaliatory strike. So, you know, it's too early to figure out what the actual impact of these strikes are. We don't know. And it's going to take some time to figure that out. But it, it is bizarre, right? Like there's this whole telegraphing of what the U.S. is going to do, you know, and it's it seems to be rooted again in this fear of escalating things to an Iraq war level status where I think there are a lot of options short of an Iraq war uh, style conflict. and and. Thankfully so. Um, so, you know, the whole thing, again, it, it's it's just a very strange way of conducting business. And it, it reflects the deep ambivalence the U.S. has about its presence throughout the whole Middle East at this point. Um, you know, I mean, think about it this way, Bill. I think I said this to you the other day on the phone, right, is that I can't remember any time. Can anybody, any U.S. leader and American leader really articulate what the strategy is or what the purpose is of American forces throughout the Middle East at this point and what they're actually doing? And I don't think they can because the main threat is Iran, and yet nobody really wants to say, well, at this point, this is about trying to contain Iranian influence. Yeah, you're absolutely correct, Tom. We haven't heard an administration articulate its strategy in the Middle East. We see pieces of it. We have troops in Iraq and Syria. That's to fight the Islamic State. These troops are essentially hostage, on, in, in, on, particularly in Syria, on smaller bases where they've come under attack. Not by the Islamic State these days, but by Iran. And it's really frustrating. You know, we put troops in harm's way, yet we can't articulate to the American public why they are really there and why they are coming under attack from the Iranians. Uh, Tom, years ago, you, uh, I, I think this, you started this with the, the um, beginning of the talks with the Taliban, you coined the term servile diplomacy. You you have a knack for doing this, for, for making me laugh, and yet coming up with the insightful terms to describe our um, scatterbrained, scatterbrained activities of our of our governments. Uh, so we 
we've watched this, the State Department, the U.S. government ca- carry this servile diplomacy over to other theaters. Most recently with Hamas, uh, U.S. is leading negotiations with Hamas, even as Hamas holds American hostages. We can't the the administration can't even insist to advocate for some way with Hamas or for Hamas by stating we'll do we'll do this we'll go to bat for you to get your state but we can't even get our hostage our american citizens freed um what is this yet another example of survival diplomacy in your estimation yeah i mean i think the u.s the u.s establishment kind of is begging for more survival diplomacy with iran and its proxies and its allies you know um that's the whole mindset, because, again, it's all framed as this dichotomy. Well, we don't want a big Iraq style war, so let's just bend over backwards to have talks with Iran and open up diplomatic channels and you know, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, here, here's an example of that, too. You mentioned the talks with Hamas, but here's another example. In January, the U.S. was very quick to let it be known to the press that intelligence was provided to the Iranians in advance of the ISIS attack in Iran. Right. The whole idea was, well, hey, we warned the Iranians that ISIS was planning a suicide bombing or suicide bombings, twin suicide bombings inside Iran uh, beforehand. And the whole idea, you know, there, there are two layers to that. One, of course, you want to prevent the loss of innocent civilian life, um, even within Iran. You know, you have civilians who were killed in this twin suicide bombing. Um, but you could just see that there's this subtext to it, uh, this context around it where you know, see, we're just looking to cooperate with the Iranians and give them a piece of intelligence to sh- show that we're on the same side. And we have the same interests. And, you know, this should maybe this will open up a channel where we can really cooperate. And it's just it's completely servile if that's the real intent behind it, because the Iranians have made it very clear for decades now. The Iranian regime, I should say, has made it very clear for decades now that they have no interest in being on the same side as the U.S. They do not have any common interest in it. In, in, in mind with us, uh, because their interests ultimately are about acquiring power for their, their same revolutionary radical goals. You know, so it, the idea that, you know, giving this intelligence to Iran was going to curry favor, if that's what anybody was thinking in the U.S., uh, intelligence establishment or D- State Department, well, you were wrong. It's not going to really curry any favor. Yeah. Did Iran give us any warning when Shia militias were attacking U.S. troops or civilians in Iraq? Oh, wait, they sponsored those attacks. Did Iran give us any warning about Taliban attacks in Afghanistan? Oh, wait, Iran was sponsoring the Taliban. And if you don't believe that, I testified in a case, Cabrera v. Iran, where we proved and it was we, we won that case in court, where we proved that Iran was providing intelligence, cash, training, both inside uh, Afghanistan as well as in Iran and um, weapons. And, you know, so. What did we really think we were going to get in return from warning Iran that uh, the Islamic State was going to conduct attack? I this this mindset, this servile mindset that you you clearly lay out is just absolutely frustrating. It's maddening. I I would guarantee you the Iranians never warned us that something bad was coming down the pike. The Iran shelters Al Qaeda leaders has sheltered Al Qaeda leaders since nine eleven. Um, Al Qaeda's uh, leader is currently, and and other key Al Qaeda leaders are sheltering inside of Iran today. What have we gotten in return for our warning Iran about an attack? We've gotten nothing but all the, but we get continual attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria. We get Houthi attacks on our warships and international shipping. It's absolute madness. Uh, I I just don't understand 
what we think we're getting in return for trying to pretend to be a partner with the Iranians. Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of there's a lot more criticism and understandably so to, to an extent of when military action goes awry or doesn't advance American interests or there's a lot of bloodshed and a loss of American treasure. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of criticism, for example, of the war in Afghanistan, the way it was conducted militarily. The two of us could could probably, I would say, do a better than any war critic uh, explaining just how messed up the whole military strategy was in Afghanistan. But there's a lot less criticism directed at servile diplomatic efforts or ineffective, feckless diplomacy. And uh, th- that that needs to change, right? There was There's never going to be any kind of real um, comeuppance or um, uh, any any kind of accountability for the feckless diplomacy we saw in Afghanistan. You know, you and I were talking about this earlier, Bill, that, you know, one of the few things that seems to have been a bipartisan agreement across three administrations was this desire to not just get out of Afghanistan, which is understandable, but was to actually appease the Taliban and surrender the Taliban. That was a common thing that the U.S. establishment kept coming back to. Let's, let's cut a deal with the Taliban, basically putting them in charge. And ultimately, we saw uh, you know how that resulted with the disastrous withdrawal in 2021. Um, but, you know, again, there, there won't be any kind of retribution. There won't be any, not retribution, there won't be any kind of uh, accountability for that at all. In fact, the people who are suffering retribution at the end of the Taliban are people who fought the Taliban in Afghanistan, you know. So the bottom line is that there's a lot of criticism for military action, a lot of uh, trepidation about going too far with military action. I th- think some of that is understandable, of course, but there's not a- enough criticism or real hard-headed thinking when it comes to um, diplomacy gone awry. Yeah, you know, I'm going to circle back to a point. You made this earlier, and um, you just made it again. You know, no one is more uh, reticent about getting involved in another Iraq-style war, an Afghanistan-style war, given our failures in those conflicts and other conflicts, even as a supporter with Ukraine, right? We're not actively involved with that, but with supplying weapons and support for the Ukrainians. You know, we're seeing what we've witnessed over the last two decades is failure and and a lack of accountability. You also mentioned that, Tom, uh, another very frustrating aspect of all this. The last thing I, I, I know I could speak for you on this is we want to get involved in another conflict such as this because I don't tr- I don't trust the people that are in charge either if they have an whether they have an R or a D next to their name next to their names um, to successfully prosecute a war even not even win a war Tom but maintain a war but stay in a fight and keep it at a manageable level, which in some ways is, you know, you can, it's, it's not ideal, but it's something I get at least, uh, it, it's somewhat palatable, right? A good example of that would have been remaining in Afghanistan to prop up, keep up, keep the Afghan government going in order to prevent the Taliban from, from taking charge. So, you know, in, in a way, you know, this is that, that really, I mean, how do we trust the Biden administration to go into a full war with Iran when they couldn't even maintain a low level presence in Afghanistan to keep the Taliban at bay. Yeah. You know, even deeper than that, I mean, you know, look, I mean, the national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, he had an essay that he penned. um, This is great. Yeah. Not, not long before everything, you know, the middle East was set on fire once again, basically arguing that the middle 
least was the calmest it's been in years. And now we can worry about China more and all these other interests because the Middle East is kind of quieted down. And that was the, the general gist of the argument. I think it was in foreign affairs. Well, foreign affairs. Yeah, it was like I, two I, weeks I, prior to the right. attack on or maybe even a week prior to the attack on Israel. I'm honestly right. I mean, amazing about, timing. Talk about wish casting, you know, I mean, it just it just shows you, you know, this is the type of wishful thinking that that, uh, you know, is set in. And, and and by the way, you know, like I'm very concerned about America's ability to contain and respond to Chinese aggression. I think there needs to be a recalibration in terms of how America does things for sure. Um, you know, it's part of the reason why I'm not pining for America to get embroiled in another huge war in the Middle East, you know, and I can understand and sympathize with that overarching desire or goal. Um, however, you know, it doesn't mean you get to just sort of see the world the way you want it to be. You have to play the cards you're dealt, the hand you're dealt. And, you know, to your point about the U.S. fighting these wars and, and what that means for the future, I'm worried because the U.S. keeps getting these conflicts where it can't define victory, it can't achieve victory, and it seems to be um, designed for slowly losing. That seems to be the way America fights wars now, either on its own or with partners and allies. And you look at sort of the conflicts that America is invested in right now, you know, um, it's supplying arms, of course, and intelligence and cooperating with Israel in the fight against Hamas after the horrific uh, genocidal October 7th terrorist attack in uh, Israel. Um, but Israel has not, in fact, uh, dealt Hamas a death blow, according to what I've been looking at most recently. Uh, Hamas seems to even be regrouping in Gaza, according to some current fresh press reports. Um didn't didn't actually defeat the enemy that that launched that horrific, uh, heinous terrorist attack on Israeli civilians. You look in Ukraine. Um, you nobody can argue the Ukrainian military is on the verge of victory. Um, I, don't, I think far from it. You look at what came out of the Iraq War. You look at what came out of the war in Afghanistan. You have the style of war fighting that seems to be playing not to lose, fighting not to lose. But in in the same token, the other side is fighting to win. And there's a big difference in that mindset. You know, that was the, that was the main criticism you and I one, one of the main criticisms we had what happened in Afghanistan. Right. Was that the U.S. government held the Afghan government in place. Now, there were many, many problems with the Afghan government, of course. Um, and but the U.S. government held the, the Afghan government, and the Afghan military forces in this mindset of that they're fighting not to lose and that there's going to be some sort of peace accommodation with the Taliban. The fight not to lose. And meanwhile, the Taliban and Al Qaeda and their allies, they were fighting to win. And who ultimately won the war, right? So it's a very different mindset, a very different way of viewing warfare. And I'm, I'm worried that now we've kind of ended up in a situation where we don't fight big wars to win big wars. And we're not even fighting small wars to win small wars. Like there just doesn't seem to be any kind of real um, strategic understanding or uh, well-defined reasoning when it comes to what America is trying to achieve here. Yeah, Tom, how many times did we hear, even from U.S. generals, there's no military solution to Afghanistan. And yet the Taliban had a military solution to Afghanistan. Of course, it, it was coupled with a very clever political solution. And, you know, we got outsmarted and outfought by the Taliban. Now, I'm certain we could have outfought the Taliban if we chose to, but we chose not to. And that's what's really frustrating. And again, this what makes me very, very hesitant to say, let's go into a full war with Iran. But that being said, something must be done. Its proxies are attacking U.S. troops. Its proxies have shut down U.S. shipping. 
or and international shipping really through the Red Sea, the Bab el-Mandeb Strait, and the Gulf of Aden, and we, yet we seem powerless to do the to do anything about it. Um, it's it's really frustrating to watch. I mean, the Houthis should be the easiest problem to deal with, and yet we've handcuffed ourselves. We've gotten ourselves into a sort of a tit for tat um, conflict with Iran. Remember, we can't. We're not allowed to call this a war. Um, the administration keeps telling us we're not at war with Iran. We're not at war. Um, but guess what? They've said they're at war with us. Yeah, I don't want to come across as thinking I've got all the answers because I certainly don't. You know, I just to me, the the, the point is, is that the, the current mode of thinking or way that American policymakers uh, think about this stuff is clearly not bearing fruit. Right. It's clearly not working in a lot of cases. And there needs to be a radical rethinking of all it. Uh, that's the general point that I'm driving at. You know, I, I do think some of these I think some of these should be easier to deal with than others. Sure. I mean, I mean, also, you know, the Houthis seem to be harassing and launching attacks. With, I mean, you correct me wrong. You're more of an expert on this than I am. But it seems to be pretty low level military tech that they're using to do this. They're not using sort of you know, high end weapon systems, as far as I can tell. Um, you know, and, and it doesn't seem to be we have a really good response to figuring out how to to contain that or end that, um, you know, and, and again, like the, 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 the counterattacks on the Houthis are sort of tit for tat. They're not designed to actually end or really uh, create deterrence. They're just meant to basically disrupt these attacks in, in the Red Sea. So, um, you know, all this to me, again, I, I, I don't have all the answers, but just looking at what's going on, you could tell the same sort of pathologies that we've seen now for more than 20 years in terms of how America and its allies fight wars. I think we're seeing a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely correct. And no, I will say the Houthis un, uh, are using some advanced weaponry, anti-ship uh, ballistic missiles, anti-ship cruise missiles. Now, are they top end U.S. Or, or Russian or Chinese quality? No, but they're, they're pretty good. They've hit ships. Yeah. Um, one. Yeah, I, guess that, I guess that's what I meant. Like in terms of technology, we're, way outpace them in terms of technology and yet and yet they're you know capable of creating all these problems you know so it's got to be it's got to be a non there's got to be some kind of way of thinking about this that kind of answers that problem and not you know but go ahead sorry i didn't cut you no off. no no you're that's fine um we you're correct we're not taking the steps necessary yeah i don't pretend to have all the answers I, I'll, I'll tell you this in this business it's easy to figure out what's going wrong it's really simple to figure out what's going what's going wrong with these conflicts. Developing policy and and executing strategy to deal with these problems a little bit more difficult. I will say with the Houthis, they're not Iran. Uh, they're not you know Russia, or China, and they're not even Iran. We can you you hit on it, Tom. We can go after the their military, but what we've chosen to done to do is a is it more of a tit for tat strategy while we're trying while. U.S. officials were saying we're seeking to re restore deterrence while at the same time saying, but we don't want a wider war. And, you know, since this started, I've been searching for a term for, to describe the, 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 the faux military deterrence that we've, that we've witnessed, particularly with the Houthis, right? The, the Iraq and Syria militia problem, it's a little more compl complicated, particularly given that the, the Iraqis were there at their, um, at their invitation and we could be ejected and maybe after this current round of strikes. But the Houthis, this is a problem we can deal with. Um, a mutual friend of ours came up with the term performance operation to describe these, these faux military operations. Um, it's a blend of uh, perform performance art and military operations. I think the term is, is perfect 
description. Um, and, you know, and this it's, is, it's, I, a, it's a great compliment to servile diplomacy too. You know, I mean, it's sort exactly. Of, you know, we needed yeah. a, we needed the military side. We had it for the di- diplomatic side. We needed it for the military side. So now we can. Now we got. Now we got it all covered. Um, yeah, th- these uh, strikes. I, in my estimation, they're designed to give me give the image that we're doing something, or, or or at the bare minimum to doing something to counter the threat, but not actually enough to deal with the root cause of the problem. Um, would you agree? We are uh, currently conducting performance operations against the Houthis. Oh yeah, I, I think you know America is involved in a lot of performance operations. You know these days, I mean that that's sort of it's a better way of saying what I was trying to say. You know, it's a much better way, much more concise way of the uh, sort of rambling critique I had earlier. But yeah, I mean that, that's that's the bottom line. It's 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 not rooted in any kind of uh, well-defined objective. It's not really rooted in any kind of understanding of really human behavior or the behavior of these types of groups. It just seems to be performative, and it's not. It clearly hasn't deterred Iran, right? I mean. You know, we, we we talk about what Iran's doing. Iran had over 160 attacks on Americans in these these latest go rounds um, before they finally killed three Americans in one of them. And um, clearly, what America was doing before that did not deter the Iranians or their proxies. These Shia militias, quite quite the opposite. And and so no, nothing deter the art of deterrence has been completely lost here. So. Again, you know, how do you restore some level of deterrence? I don't know exactly how to do that. I just know that it's clear that what America is doing now is not doing it. And I do think there is there are some easier ways of going about this going forward, including really, uh, you know, hitting the Houthis in a way that hurts them as opposed to just to for tat on their their operations. Yeah, the, in, in deterrence is something you need to establish before we get to 160 plus strikes against U.S. forces. It's something we may have been able to establish at the beginning, but as these strikes continue and as the enemy continues to sense weakness, continues to, uh, they continually see that we aren't serious about creating and maintaining deterrence. It be the, the costs of restoring that deterrence become increasingly greater over time. And that's where we are. So instead of, you know, hitting some key targets, which would include Iranians. And this was something we really weren't willing to do in the beginning. Um, We've, you know, now we're forced to do this. Uh, We're, we're forced to hit them harder, but I'm not even sure that this will restore deterrence. Uh, What are your thoughts, Tom? Yeah. I mean, I I think it's, I don't, I don't, Right now, I doubt, based on what I'm reading, it's going to restore deterrence. But, you know, again, time will tell. We have to figure out. It's still in the early hours after these strikes. But, yeah, I mean, I think that it's very, from the Iranians' perspective, it's easy to draw the blood of proxies and its militiamen and people that it considers their lives to be fairly cheap, um, you know, and and not hitting the Iranians that they care about, the real Iranians that they care about, the real Iranian leaders, um, whether they be in Iraq or elsewhere, or even inside Iran, it tells you that America is not going to actually respond to the real puppet master, the real uh, entity that that's pulling the strings on all this. And so that's how you end up in these types of conflicts where Iran gets to move on the offensive, push things forward, use these uh, proxies to wage its war against America and its allies. And America is, is very, very hesitant to the point of complete reluctance to actually respond to Iran itself. It just wants to respond to the proxies that are pushing the fight against the U.S. So to, to me, that provides a strategic advantage to the Iranians, right? Because it means that they can continue to use the blood of, you know, which they consider cheap of proxies and militiamen and these types 
to attack Americans and harass Americans and not have to worry about any kind of real attack on themselves. Yeah, the, the Iranian strategy, it's I mean, it's simple. It's easy to see, but it's it's very clever. First, by using the proxies, they give themselves plausible deniability. That's easily swallowed by the disconnect crowd, the dots crowd, right? Um, so that's wise. And then, as you noted, Tom, they're, they'll gladly sacrifice hundreds, if not thousands of, of the militiamen in order to achieve their goals of driving the U.S. from the Middle East, of dealing a blow to the to israel as well what they also want to do is get the u.s to force israel to the table to stop these attacks and getting the israel to the table and allowing hamas to survive is also one of iran's goals in the region because that would be a defeat for israel the you know uh, look uh you know back of the envelope what would i do again i would start with the houthis that's an easy one you hit the houthi military capabilities hard not tit for tat but go on it with a concerted air campaign um, and take out these launch sites, but also take out the individuals behind it. And there are our, our, there are IRGC advisors inside of Yemen that are helping launch those anti-ship ballistic missiles and cruise missiles, as well as maintaining them. The Iranians are supplying the Houthis with weapons, uh, with those advanced weapons. Um, they send them in on ships and uh, disassembled, and then they're assembled, so you're going to need Iranian technicians. You know, hit them hard. Maybe some of these ships just so happen to sink in the sea. We don't have to announce it. There's an there's Iranian intelligence ships that are applying the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. In one of these attacks, where there were two Maersk uh, cargo ships that were uh, that are used to transport U.S. military equipment, one of these ships was shadowing the the two ships as they were under attack. I mean, I don't think you need to be a genius to to know that this ship was providing intelligence to the Houthis in order to, to conduct these attacks. Maybe that ship shouldn't float. There's IRGC personnel on the ships. That doesn't mean we need to launch a ground invasion into Iran or even conduct airstrikes inside of Israel, or I'm sorry, inside of Iran. Um, I might consider the latter, you know, maybe Iran likes to attack our Navy. Maybe some of their ships need to, needs to, to be uh, floating or should I say um, visiting the bottom of uh, of the port um there's there's things that we can do that are far short to that i think would strike fear in the heart of the iranians another thing people need to understand with the iranians they they like this stuff ex this conflict external but conflict inside of iran that makes them look weak that makes them look weak to the iranian opposition to the people that they they keep under their thumb that's one of the reasons why the iranians responded so I would say boldly to the attack by the Islamic State at um, the, the the funeral site or the uh, grave site of Qasem Soleimani, um, because that showed weakness. It showed that they were vulnerable, and the Iranians don't like that. So maybe one or two things do, do need to happen inside of Iran to make them think twice. Now, again, we could debate all of that. That's what policymakers should be talking about. They shouldn't be disconnecting the dots between Iran and its proxies. They shouldn't be sending warnings to Iranians. To, to the Iranian regime of attacks, and they shouldn't be uh, signaling to Iran that we're going to conduct an air campaign so that its its commanders, its IRGC advisors can leave the bases, and as well as the militia leaders can leave the bases. 
Yeah, no, you summed it up much better than I did right there. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. That's that's what the real that's what real thinking about answering uh, the Iranian aggression would mean. And it means not disconnecting the dots between the Iranian regime and its various arms throughout the region. Um, but the responses so far I've seen, I mean, it, you know, CENTCOM does announce that some of the IRGC facilities were struck or places where IRGC were that that, of course, that's part of the Iran, uh, Iranian regime's um, terror network. And that's a big part of it. And some of those personnel are going to be more valuable to Iran than others. So that makes sense. But exactly right. You're, you're, you're pointing out that, you know, this, the whole disconnect the dots. And the reason why we sat down to do this is because you can just see that there's still this this mode of thinking that says Iran is one thing and these proxies are another. And that's a really a false dichotomy. Yeah. And, you know, on that point, Tom, I always go back to. How are these proxy some of these proxy leaders, are they are they part of the IRGC? I remember a designation of. Um, Abu Mahdi al-Mahandis, he was the head of Iraq's popular mobilization forces. He founded the Hezbollah Brigades, one of the top militias inside of Iraq that are, of course, the Iranian proxies that's responsible for killing hundreds of Americans. And he was killed alongside Qasem Soleimani. And his designation, I believe it was in 2007, um, the State Department described him as an advisor to Qasem Soleimani. If he's considered that highly, is he a member of the IRGC? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so what is, you know, uh, Akram al-Kabi or who, some of these other militia leaders, um, you know, Case Kazali, the head of Asib al-Haq, we've seen them, they visit Iran and visit the IRGC headquarters. They're photographed with the IRGC commanders. They're, they're, they're viewed by the Iranians as part of this network. Now, yes. They are the Iraqi IRGC. I'm sure to the Iranians, they're far more expendable than their own Iranian members of the IRGC. But to try to disconnect the dots, to try to say these guys really aren't part of Iran's network or they're loosely affiliated, um, things like that. It's this is this is madness. And this is why we get into this spot where we are today, where we're trying to the administration is dissembling between what is a proxy militia. And what is Iran? Deal with them the same. And part of disconnected dots, well said, and part of disconnected dots is not recognizing that they're part of the same chain of command, that ultimately they're answering up to the same real decision makers and power brokers who are really pulling the string on all this from inside Iran. And that's the that's that's where the disconnected the dots stuff really becomes um, so damning for an, an ability uh, for any effort to sort of contain or turn back or deter Iranian aggression. You know, I was thinking, by the way, there's one other thing. I, I noted before we came on here too. Uh, I know you saw this and you wrote something with the Long Word Journal. You know, years ago we um, started covering these UN reports that came out from the monitoring team for the U.S. United Nations Security Council monitoring team, and the latest report came out on January 29th. And I was reading through it, and you know, it's just so many of the things that we've talked about for years, um, and how U.S. intelligence, how U.S. assessments got things wrong. You can see how the UN analysts obviously are seeing things very differently. And in fact, uh, you know, their analysis is much more, I wouldn't say it's perfect, but it's much more consistent with the facts as we know them from other sources than some of the assessments we've seen come out of the US. And I thought that was very telling. You know, I was reading through that and you could you could see the 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 costs or the problems with disconnecting the dots. You could see the flip side when you start connecting them, you could reconnect them, you could see uh, the, the problem, the disconnect the dot uh, mindset. So, for example, when it comes to Afghanistan, where there was all this disconnecting the dots between the Taliban and Al Qaeda throughout all these years, 
Um, you can see yet again, you have a UN report saying that they remain close. There's all these Al-Qaeda training camps in Afghanistan. You have some senior uh, Al-Qaeda personnel, although there's some disagreement about how many, um, that they have facilitation uh, networks and safe houses connecting these personnel to Saif Al-Ado, who's the de facto leader of Al-Qaeda, who's inside Iran. You know, this is stuff that we've been documenting for many years. Like none of that, I read those passages, I thought, geez, no, this is new to us. This is exactly what we would expect the picture to look like. And yet, you know, you know that there's a prevailing Taliban apology, uh, you know, disconnect the dots mindset that looks at that and is looking for ways to pretend that that's not the truth, right? That there's some other meaning to all that, um, that there's something else really going on. The Taliban are really just good boys and we just need to be nice with them. You know, that's basically, that's where the disconnect the dots mindset gets you. And, and that stuff, you know, it may seem, um, maybe may seem being flippant about this, but that stuff really sunk in on the American side throughout the Afghan war, you know, and that stuff also sunk in in terms of how America sees Iran itself, because, you know, here, you know, I first wrote about Saif al-Adol, who's now considered the de facto leader of Iran. I think it was like 20 years ago. Yeah, that know? has to I mean, be Tom. You it know? has to and, be. And the, my assessment back all the way back then was that Al-Qaeda had split its hands, like an experienced blackjack player that basically, some of its senior personnel were going to be in Pakistan, Afghanistan, or elsewhere, and then some of them were going to go to Iran and stay in Iran. Um, now, of course, the relationship between Iran and these senior Al Qaeda leaders and Al Qaeda itself is not always, um, you know, it's not always, you know, holding hands in the middle of the field somewhere. Like they, they don't get along all the time; they have disagreements. But um, by the same token, Iran provided this safe haven for senior Al Qaeda leaders who were. You know, basically protected against the drone campaign that Americans launched, uh, protected against most special operations um, that could be launched by the U.S. its allies, with the one exception of an Israeli operation that got one of these guys. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, here, you know, this is something where, you know, has there there was some early complaining about Iran sheltering senior Al Qaeda leaders in like the circa 2003 era, but and the U.S. does designations, it does sanctions, but none of that seems to filter into how America perceive American leadership perceives Iran, or that America that Iran really is on the other side of all these different conflicts. It doesn't it doesn't seem to impact, for example, the servile diplomatic efforts we see, uh, you know, and 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 this desire to find some common ground with the Iranians when they time and time and time again say, no, we don't have any common ground. Yeah, Tom, the the Iran Al Qaeda connection, which you have documented better than anyone I know. The secret deal between uh, Iran and Al Qaeda. That's not you and I saying that. That's the U.S. Treasury Department, or was it the State or Treasury? I think it was Treasury. Uh, that documented this not under the Bush administration or the Trump administration, but under the the Obama administration. Um, and yet we're continually told Iran and Al Qaeda can't cooperate. They're one Sunni, one Shia. They hate each other. And yet, Saif Al Adel, the leader of Al Qaeda, is living in Iran and has been for some time, as well as other key leaders. And yeah, you're correct. There's not always, they're not always operating in concert. They're not always in agreement. And yet safe ball Adel still breathe. And, and as do, right. I mean, this yeah. is, yeah. When, when, by the way, when I say, I, you know, I said the Iranians there, but of course I mean the Iranian regime. Of course. Right? Yeah. Sure, yeah. Everyone, yeah. everyone shorthand right. when we say Iran yeah. or the Iranians, yeah, I'm talking about the Iranian about the regime, regime. not the Iranian people. I, I, I would guess that the Iran, a lot of the Iranian people have no idea what their government is really doing. I mean, I, you know, if, if I think if a lot of Iranian people knew the safe houses in Mashhad or, Tehran or some of the other places, you know, Sahadan in, in Iran, they probably, you know, would not be happy about it. But, you know, Al-Qaeda's had a presence there for many years, and there's never been any kind of holistic sort of uh, attempt to really 
factor that into how America deals with Iran strategically, right? And again, I think it all comes back to the Iraq war and the desire to avoid a sort of Iraq 2.0. And we certainly want to avoid Iraq 2.0, but that doesn't mean that policymakers should be playing disconnect the dots when it comes to the what the reality is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the reaction to that UN report from, you know, one of the individuals who's on that uh, commission for the U.S. Senate was, you know, this is all BS. It doesn't track with what the U.S. intelligence agencies uh, agencies say about um, Al Qaeda in Afghanistan. Even citing Which, the even even though they've been wrong for you know for <laughs> on everything. And a half. I mean, it's uh, it's obvious American intelligence has been wrong about Al Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan for a decade and a half. You know, but that that's the disconnect the dots mindset. That's exactly right. what we're talking about, right? Let's play disconnect the dots instead of like looking at the facts as they are. Look, I mean, none of this is really that complicated, folks. Ayman al Zawahiri, for God's sake, was killed by the Americans in Kabul, the head of Al Qaeda's global network, right? And he was living in a in a Haqqani sponsored safe house, right? But but the disconnect the dots crowd, it doesn't matter how many facts you come up with like that. They're gonna they're gonna do what they can to protect their precious Taliban, right? And I, I say to those people, by the way, it's your Emirate too. You know, that's it's your yeah. Emirate too. Then you know they should they should, they should go live there. Uh, you know, and let's give some details. Okay, fine. Let's just dismiss Zawahiri as a one-off, right? And Tom, we could do this all day. How about Abu Iqlas al masri who was in U.S. custody, a member of Al Qaeda, who was leading operations in Afghanistan? But he is he was, really? Is he really Al Qaeda? Uh, right. He's just an <laughs> Arab who probably was there right. studying the right. Quran, Tom. Um. He was in U.S. Uh, or actually in Afghan custody uh, by the time the U.S. left, freed by the Taliban, now returns. This is according to the United Nations, returns uh, opening running Al Qaeda training camps. We have Abu Haq al-Turkistani, the head of the, the Turkestan Islamic Party and it's an Al Qaeda affiliate. How do we know that? Well, because the U.S. government told us in his designation. I can't remember the year, probably 2009. Yeah, I wrote this up. I wrote this up yeah. eight times. Abdul Haq was on the Shura Council for all. On the Shura Council, this is an example where an affiliate is not really an affiliate, right? He's, in fact, you know, I, I, I got the Bin Laden files where he was getting paid by Osama Bin Laden directly out of Bin Laden's bank accounts, right? But you know, he's not really Al Qaeda bill because he's, you know, Turkestan Islamic Party. So that can't but, be right, something totally different. We got to disconnect yeah, the dots. No, on that. definitely. Yeah, can't can't admit that one. You know, May two thousand in Afghanistan, in northern Afghanistan, celebrating the Taliban's victory. I'll I'll just stop there. there there's two. There's more like Dr. Amin al-Haq, Osama bin Laden's, the former head of his Black Guard or his security organization, triumphantly returns from Pakistan, shock of all shocks, within two weeks after the fall of Afghanistan and the Taliban taking over. I mean, you know, again, we could go on and on and on, but let's just not call any of these guys al-Qaeda or core al-Qaeda because they're not um, household names to the American public or even to members in the U.S. government. It's really frustrating. Some of the things I'm going to just, you know, some of the things in this U.N. report, four more provinces are hosting al-Qaeda, eight al-Qaeda training camps. Um, they said that the U.N. reports that some of these are transient. That's on top of the six that were identified, six provinces that were identified last year. So that makes 10 of 34 Afghanistan's provinces hosting training camps for al-Qaeda. Not a good look, not, folks. How do, you not, how do you not know they're not like summer vacation facilities though bill i mean you know we don't know I mean, it's true it's you know, true I mean, those jungle gyms that are on fire yeah. that people are jumping i mean what through. i mean don't we have to redefine what a training camp is don't we have to sure. you know, define it as something other than that it's, no, I mean, you know what it's a fitness program for arabs who are in afghanistan to learn the quran oh and by the way they've opened five madrasa 
in or madrasa in five different provinces, of course, religious schools run by Al Qaeda. Oh, and on the issue of the training camps, by the way, we can track training camps in several of these provinces over time. So when you had said the UN, you know, is putting out information that's not surprising to us because this tracks exactly like yeah, what we some, see. So a lot of it actually matches the historical data. It matches what we knew from before, when even the war was going on. I mean, some of the hotspots that are identified, some of the personnel that are identified. I mean, it's not surprising, right? I mean, it's the same stuff that we've seen going back a decade and a half ago. And yet, <laughs> for some reason, the American side oftentimes refuses to update. You know, it's it's the exact opposite, right, of the scientific process, the scientific method. That's what disconnecting the dots is. It's a prevailing bias that says we're going to look for a reason to explain this away. And, you know, if, if I sounded a little starky there when it came to this stuff, that – it actually, that is exactly the type of mindset we have run into. You know, I remember there was a staff, there was a staffer on the Hill who said, well, yeah, Al-Qaeda is in Afghanistan, but it's small Q Al-Qaeda, not big capital Q Al-Qaeda. And I said, what in the hell does that mean? <laughs> you know, I mean, what do you mean by that? Like, how are you defining that? And it was this disconnect the dot stuff. Like, it's not really Al-Qaeda. It's something else, you know? So, you know, look, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a pervasive mindset. I don't have any, I don't have any hope that any kind of real, analysis will come out of anything on the Hill in terms of what's going on in Afghanistan or what Al-Qaeda really looks like there. Again, I've said this before on our podcast, even previously, the last some of the last times I was on it, I really hope that nothing ever comes out of this, that there's no huge, you know, a, you know, event out of all this, but none of that really excuses the terrible analysis that we've seen. Uh, and, and it's going to be the same thing over and over again. I don't really think that there will ever be any kind of real accountability for rotten analysis or a disastrous war effort in Afghanistan or the survival diplomacy. Yeah. The only way this will change will be with accountability. And we have solved none of that. The same people who lost Afghanistan are leading efforts now. Um, and, you know, that's not a way a successful business would run its operations. These people would have been fired. Um, and yet they continue on the it's, it's it's just so frustrating to watch, Tom. Um, you know, I, I know I know you share my frustration in 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 watching all of this go down. Um, it's it's really, really hard to do this job some days. I I know it must be for you. Well, you know, I you know, look, I don't I don't the reason I don't think that way for me personally, because I don't have, you know, there's so many other people who've had, you know, their lives have been on the line throughout all this stuff in the post 9 11 era. And and really I I am really concerned at the end of the day about the people whose lives are put in the way of all this and this bad thinking. You know, I mean, I, I think about those three American service members who were killed in Jordan uh, recently. I, I didn't have anything at stake like those people or their families did. So it's 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 far easier for me to sit here and critique things and do this. But but the motivation for that is that I don't, you know, whereas I think for the Iranians, a lot of blood is cheap. Um, blood is not cheap for me. And it's certainly no American blood for me is cheap, you know. And if we're going to put Americans in harm harm's way, we should know why we're doing it and have a real uh, understanding of what we're doing and why that blood is worth something and what we're trying to accomplish. And I just don't think given the, the hapless, feckless thinking and analysis and foreign policy commentary and disconnect the diet dots mindset that we've documented now for two decades, it just seems to just, just, it seems to be invincible. Right? It just doesn't seem to go away, you know? And so I don't, I don't have, you know, I'll leave you on this thought from my perspective. You know, one of the last things in, 2021, I testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee, and I, I called for some sort of commission or some sort of accountability um, for the Afghan war, for military leadership, for political leadership, for diplomatic leadership, you know, for the whole thing. There needs to be a real, uh, you know, 
uh, air cleaning here. It needs to be a, uh, you know, a coming clean of what actually happened and how all these terrible and how, how this, this war became so disastrous. But some of the same pathologies are in play now throughout the Middle East and how the war is being fought. And I don't think there will be any accountability for what we say in Afghanistan. I don't think there's going to be any accountability for the bad decisions that are being made today. Yeah, Tom, with the Afghanistan Commission, when you put people that were involved in the failed policies and the failed execution of those policies on the commission, do you really think they're going to get to the heart of the problem? Do you really think yeah, well, that they're I, interested I, I in endorsed- accountability? Yeah, I endorsed the general effort. I didn't endorse that one. That's what I was Absolutely. Yeah. No, well, we, yeah. we knew it. We saw it coming. And, you know, Tom, what fr- what makes frustrates me is is that the decisions, that disconnecting the dots, that servile diplomacy, that performance operations ultimately do lead to the death of Americans. And that's what gets me. You know, look, if this was my local sports team and I saw mismanagement and bad decision makings, like let's say, you know, my team was the Cleveland Browns. I could go to bed at night and go, oh, well, it's just sports, but there's real people's lives at stake, our national security's at stake. And I, I guess maybe my problem is caring too much. Well, I think on that note, that that is uh, the way it ended, I think, for my, my return to the Generation Jihad podcast, huh? Yeah, John, Tom, it's a real pleasure having you back. I, I, I miss these talks. I mean, look, we get to have them privately. I'm glad we get to, sh- we, we get to have them publicly. We get to share our, our thoughts on this crazy, not war, um, today on Generation Divine. Yeah, well, thanks for having me again, Bill. I appreciate it. It's been two years. It's been too long since I've been on here. But, you know, I do appreciate the uh, opportunity to come back on and talk about all this stuff. We are passionate about it and passionate about, um, you know, getting it right. And, I again, I'll just close on saying I don't claim to have all the answers. But, boy, I know the, our policymakers sure don't either, you know. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can listen to us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe to Generation Jihad and leave us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again real soon.